the theme this evening that I'd like to reflect upon is reality and response. It can sometimes seem that a lot of what we're suggesting in meditation, if and it would seem this way if not understood correctly, it could seem that what we're suggesting in practice is somehow just accepting everything and not re not responding, not engaging with our experience in an active way. And there's an element of practice practice which certainly is concerned essentially with simply receiving, allowing, accepting. And yet equally practice is concerned with being able to respond, being able to respond in a way that is beneficial, is transformative, makes a difference in the quality of what it means to be alive. So when we look at the reality of experience, what we're actually confronted with, one of the features that stands out and we've touched upon over these days is the fact that experience changes. We see when we look at all things, no matter what they are, whether external and apparently substantial, such as mountains or rivers or lakes, if we look at them long enough, we'll see that they actually change. Certainly, if we look rather more closely at hand to our own body, heart, mind, experience, and the circumstances around us, we notice that they are changing. They do not stay constant. And... As we've been practicing meditation, we've had the opportunity to realize that not only are they changing these experiences, but they're doing, in a, doing so in a way which is not according to our choice or preference, is not within our control. This rather simple reality, this self-evident, it would seem, actuality, leads us to recognize that experiences in themselves, given that they're changing and not in our control, cannot give us lasting satisfaction. This is the teaching, the understanding that the Buddha presents as an invitation to consider whether it makes sense to try and seek satisfaction from things which cannot give it. Obviously, wisdom suggests that that doesn't make sense. But how do we respond to a world which we cannot control? How do we engage with a circumstance which is not as we might have wished it to be if we were given the capacity to recreate it according to our preference? How do we engage with this life that we have? Zen Master Dogen was once asked, What is enlightenment? And his response? Enlightenment is an authentic response. Authentic, genuine, true. A response that comes from knowing the way things are. So it's not about some idea or understanding in and of itself. 
It's about how that wisdom or understanding manifests in the world, responding to the way things are. So we need to recognize, we need to see, and we're given the opportunity through being present, through mindfulness, through interest, through looking directly and seeing into our experience, we begin to recognize how things are. We learn that it really doesn't help or doesn't serve us to resist the way things are. We need to open to it, to allow it to be as it is. And as we do that, we begin to see what is possible. And what is possible is to actually cultivate this capacity to respond, to see that within the challenges and the limitations of life, there is a remarkable opportunity to bring forth from our very own being something remarkable and to live in this world in a way in which the limitations that are inherent in the world do not need to require or demand that our experience of the world is thereby limited or bound. Wisdom is essentially the capacity or the the perspective on life that when we act on it leads to the end or the reduction of suffering. And Dharma teachings are essentially pointing us towards wisdom because it is through wisdom that suffering is resolved. Through the dissatisfaction, the disconnection, the sense of something being missing, or whatever or however we might experience this. This is resolved through wisdom. And wisdom says, look and see what's here. It's not a mistake that it's this way. And there's potential within it. There's potential within it. And so I'd like to reflect on this potential and to use as a template for the reflection a a poem that was written by a a samurai, a Japanese spiritual warrior, we could say, in the 14th century, of which I think has a lot to say or speak to this particular theme. So I'd like to read the poem, and it's actually not the entirety of the poem, and it's so, but uh, I'd like to read it and then just take some time to reflect on the, the couplets within the poem, the stanzas of the poem. So this samurai, he writes, I have no parents. I make the heavens and earth my parents. I have no life or death. I make the tides of breathing my life and death. I have no divine power. I make honesty my divine power. I have no friends. I make my mind my friend. I have no enemy. 
I make carelessness my enemy. I have no castle. I make immovable mind my castle. I have no home. I make awareness my home. I have no armor. I make benevolence my armor. I have no sword. I make absence of self my sword. And I sometimes think I should just stop there. Perhaps to make up for all the talks where I go on and on. <laughs> but uh, whether fortunately or unfortunately, I can't seem to resist. <laughs> I have no parents. What does it mean to be an adult human being? To no longer have someone who in an ideal world at least, in the role of parents, would be standing there behind us, always there for us, taking care of us, protecting us from harm, providing us with what we need. We don't have that in this world. Certainly not in any absolute way, although we may be fortunate to have parents or people who support us in many ways. But there is no one who can ultimately look after you. There is no one ultimately upon whom you can rest your life or who can fully manifest from you the potential of your life. I have no parents. I make the heavens and earth my parents. To see that although there is no one who stands behind us in any ultimate or lasting sense, we can rest on the earth. There's something about the nature of what it means to be on this planet that supports us, that provides the ground upon which and through which we practice. And there's something very powerful, particularly when we might encounter threatening or challenging situations or the arising of fear or anxiety in our experience, to actually just remember what it feels like to touch the earth, to put our feet on the ground, to feel our butt or buttock. I'm never quite sure which one is the polite one. <laughs> we don't use either of them where I come from. But one of those two is quite polite. So, <laughs> To feel our bottom on the cushion... And the sense of what it is to be earthed. And at the same time, when we feel constricted or constrained or limited, to just sense the possibility of the space around us, the sky and heavens above. And even in a room such as this, where sometimes we feel like it's kind of crowded, and there's not much room for me or for ourselves. It's only kind of crowded for about the first three feet. Most of the room is empty. To see that something that brings out of us our potential is a recognizing of the space that is around. To rest 
on the earth to arise or rise up under the, the heavens, we could say. To me, that seems like they could fill the role quite well. I have no life or death. We can't control this existence. We didn't choose to come in. We will not choose the time or most likely the manner of our departure. How can we claim to own this life, this birth, this journey from birth to death that we call being alive? How can we claim to own that? And if we see that we can't claim it, we can't predict it, we can't control it, we don't own it, we have no life or death. But I make the tides of breathing my life and death. To see we are born in each breath afresh in this moment. And it's not just a figure of speech. If that breath didn't happen, that would indicate, the clearest one to indicate that, oh, this life has stopped. That's what happens. It starts coming in when we're born, and at some point it goes out, and it just doesn't come back in. And that's it. Nothing kind of radical or unusual in one sense. It's just that. The breath goes out. Life concludes. To make the tides of breathing our birth and death is to enter into the immediacy of the present moment. That is all we have. There is nothing else. The birth that we took and the death we will one day enter at some level don't exist at all. They're not there. What's here is what's here. This breath, this moment. To come into each breath with that sense of immediacy and presence is to actually live your life. And ultimately to see the emptiness of your death. I have no divine power. I make honesty my divine power. Hmm. Divine power sounds good, you know. I'd like some of that. The idea that some sort of cosmic supernatural capacity to organize things as I would wish them to be, to remove those difficult obstacles or challenges and uh, provide some extra cushions when I'm feeling uncomfortable or whatever. Divine power, however, we might wish it for ourselves or for someone else who might be out there looking after us. It's not what's happening. It's not here. Not in that sense, anyway. And yet, to make honesty our divine power, what would that mean? To recognize the power of truthfulness. The Buddha spoke of this as something not to be underestimated. Truthfulness, to align our life with truth, is to align ourselves with that which takes us beyond the mundane, 
and the worldly to that which we could call divine. And it begins in the simple way of simply honoring what we know to be true and recognizing what it is that we do not know to be true. Not pretending that we can be certain about the many things that are unknown. When you see the thoughts that flicker through your mind, if you would consider for a moment how many of them are really as certain and absolute as they'd like to think they are. And we see, of course, that most of them are not. (coughs) Honesty is to say to ourselves in that regard, I don't know. Honesty is equally to say to ourselves when we look inside and see what is wholesome and good in our being. The the qualities of heart and mind that are contributing to well-being, to harmony, to ease, to peace, to healing. Sometimes as Westerners it's hard for us to be honest with ourselves about the good qualities in our hearts. We're relentlessly and remorselessly honest about all the things that we could improve on. Now, we need to acknowledge those as well. But sometimes I think the harder honesty for us is to actually acknowledge the goodness that moves in us. Without, of course, pretending or in any way denying that there aren't also those areas that we need to give attention to, to understand. If we're willing to see what is true, this is part of honesty and this willingness to not be willing to deceive ourselves any longer, to be willing to face the truth even if uncomfortable or the uncertainty if that's what's true, to have that courage is to be empowered in this world. I have no friends. I make my mind my friend. And it really comes back to me, for me, this, to what we can rely on. There is no one else who makes this whole journey with us. There are times when we are by ourselves. And certainly the journey that we take at the ending of our life through the gateway of death is one that no one can accompany us, certainly not beyond the threshold. There's something about allowing ourselves to feel our aloneness that's not easy. To not kid ourselves about the idea that there will be a friend who can always be there for us. Of course, there can be wonderful friends and a blessing they are indeed. But the really the only thing that comes with us all the way is our mind. What is it to make your mind your friend? So often it seems we treat mind as though it's the problem. We make mind into the enemy or the distraction or the resistant, confusing, annoying, irritating, upset, painful, contracted, reactive thing that we're trying to sort out. Though, of course, it's the mind itself that's trying to sort it out when it's relating in that way. To make our mind our friend is to allow the mind to serve us 
not to be our master, but nor yet to be our slave. It need not control you, nor need you control it. That wouldn't be friendship. But to actually support and encourage it towards its potential, the capacity of mind that we train and develop through this practice, developing that capacity for collected undistractedness, for openness, receptivity, for curiosity and interest. The Buddha once said, I know of no one thing that more conduces or leads to suffering than an untrained mind. And he said, and I know of no one single one thing that more conduces and leads to happiness and the end of suffering than a well-trained mind. To see that the mind that we are supporting to grow into its capacity through training it is what makes the difference to suffering or not. And just as if we were to have a, a pet, a, a dog, that had to live in our world, it wouldn't be happy if we didn't train it. If we just left a puppy to grow up always eating whatever it wanted, going wherever it wanted, doing whatever it wanted to do, whenever and wherever it wanted to do it, it wouldn't get on in this world very well at all. And so it's an act of kindness to train it, to know when to stop, when to go, when to eat and when to not. It's an act of kindness to our mind, a befriending of our mind, to restrain its impulsive, scattered reactivity. But out of friendship, not out of fear, rejection or condemnation of its behavior. I remember once when I was uh, sitting in a retreat in England and uh, with a, a Burmese teacher, Saida Ujanaka, I was doing walking meditation outside the interview room, waiting for my interview, and uh, there was the, uh, the practitioner in front of me having his interview in there, and he was speaking quite loudly, so I was able to overhear the interview, and I was just being mindful of it, and there was this kind of rather... <laughs> rather stern Burmese Sayadaw. He was, and, and this young man, who's apparently, I think from what I discerned, recently ended his relationship with his uh, girlfriend, or girlfriend had ended the relationship with him. And he was deeply distraught and crying and sad. And he was saying to the Sayadaw, I'm all alone, I have no friends. The Sayadaw spoke to him in response incredibly compassionately. He said, Mindfulness is your friend. It's like something you can rely on. Mindfulness is what makes our mind our friend. And so we cultivate it. We develop this. I have no enemies. Imagine this. I have no enemies. 
to not look into this world and make anything, anyone, any situation our enemy. And yet having recognized that one has no enemies, to make carelessness our enemy, to see. Enemies are those things which are out there trying to hurt us, aren't they? When we understand human beings, we see that ultimately they're all trying to do whatever they're doing, even harmful and destructive things, because they think it's the right thing to do. Because at some level they're trying to protect or promote what they value or believe in. Maybe it's just themselves. But in the end, the harm that is done to others is simply an unfortunate and tragic byproduct of that misguided and narrow self-cherishing. To not make enemies out of others, and yet to see that carelessness is our enemy. Because when we're not present, when we act unconsciously, habitually, and without care, when our heart isn't connected to our action, that's carelessness. Action without care, when we don't care. When we act from that place, we harm ourselves. We harm ourselves profoundly and deeply. Mindfulness protects us from the harm of the reactive mind which has been allowed to spill into action. Unconscious, uncontrolled, unrestrained action born of greed or craving, born of anger or hatred, born of confusion or delusion. Actions born of these things, when we act in those ways from these roots, It causes suffering, not just to others, but to ourselves. Profoundly and deeply, we harm ourselves through unconscious, careless action. And so, establishing as that which we are committed to defeating, i.e. the enemy, establishing carelessness as that, to see we wish to act from care, with care, with presence, infusing our action with the best of our capacity to contribute to the well-being of others and ourselves. I have no castle. I make immovable mind my castle. Again, one has that sense of, wouldn't it be nice to have a fortress, something impregnable where no bad, nasty, difficult, horrible things could get in. You know, to have that sense of protection. But we don't have that. At least I don't. And I don't know if any of you have a castle, but I haven't noticed it here with you, so it's going to be of limited use if it's one that can't come on retreat. Immovable mind is our castle if we understand that we can learn what it means to not be compelled to have to leave our ground, to not lose our ground in this moment, to not depart from ourselves. It's like that sense of a fortress is that place that no one else can take away from you. And what no one can take away from us 
is the capacity to actually stay where we are. This is not easy. This is remarkably challenging. The winds and the forces of this world that pull us into reactivity. And in reactivity, we lose our ground. In chasing after pursuing or in pushing away and resisting, we lose our ground and we get swept or pulled by the force of that which we are entangled with. It's not easy to stay steady in the face of the world. The power it has is not to be underestimated. This is not something to say, oh yeah, that makes sense, I'll do that. This is not a light undertaking. And I'd like to read you a piece that I think is something useful to say about that. It's a poem called If. And um, some of you may have heard the poem by Rudyard Kipling, an uh, Englishman who lived in India, called If. And it's a very beautiful poem, very sort of classic, sort of heroic um, Victorian, um, sort of all the things you have to do that are noble and good that enable you in the end to be a man or a woman, I guess. But it's written, I think, to his son. I'm not sure. Anyway, this is not that poem. <laughs> but I think it has some bearing. If you know that poem, you'll recognize perhaps the root of this one. Anyway, if, if you can sit quietly after difficult news, if in financial downturns you remain perfectly calm, if you can see your neighbors travel to fantastic places without a twinge of jealousy, if you can happily eat whatever is put in front of you, if you can fall asleep after a day of running around without a drink or a pill. If you can always find contentment just where you are. You are probably a dog. Fortunately, only probably. There is hope <laughs> for us, but it is a challenge. It is a challenge. And yet, what gives the resolve to take on that challenge, to say, this is my seat, here I will stay, is to see that when we allow ourselves to be moved from our own ground, from our sense of what is true. It, it's like we, we lose contact with something very important, very precious. And to, it's, it's where we actually lose contact with ourself. And I don't mean this in terms of ego self. I mean in terms of our being, in terms of what is core and substantial within our life could call it heart, we could call it being. When we get drawn off into reactivity, when we're pushing away, when we're grasping, what happens is we're out of balance. We're leaning into that which we grasp or we're leaning away from that which we're resisting or trying to avoid. And we're not centered anymore. We're not centered in the present. We lose touch with that quality of presence that is our ground, that is what we can rely on. In the night before his enlightenment, 
the Buddha sat down under the Bodhi tree and he said, and I still find it touches me, having heard and repeated these words many times, he said, I will not move from this spot until I have understood what may be understood by a human being. I will not move from this spot, though my blood runs dry, though my bones turn to dust. I will not move until I have understood. That resolve, that commitment, and trusting in the possibility of that, not just for the Buddha, but he's speaking there for each and every one of us. We have this capacity. We can choose to say, I'm staying here and I'm going to face what comes because I don't want to run away anymore. I don't want to try and cover it over with cotton wool. I want to see my life. And in seeing life, I want to enter into its depths. This is what is important. And in doing so, to not abandon. Not abandon our life. Not abandon ourself, our being. This is a movable mind. Not that the mind doesn't move, because the mind moves, but really I would say that the heart stays steady in the face of whatever comes. I have no home. I make awareness my home. In these changing moments, in this flood and flow of experience, of sights and sounds, of smells and taste and touch and thought, in this constantly unfolding movement that pours through consciousness, what is it that we could make home of? What is it that we could say, here I will rest? Here I will stop. Here I will always come back to. There is nothing that's there for more than a moment. You know the old saying, you can't step in the same river twice? It's moved on. It's something different every time you go back. Life is like that. We cannot make a home, a place of resting in something which is fluid and in motion and constantly flickering from one manifestation into the other, into the next, to see this clearly. We cannot find a home in this. As expressed, that sense of what that is, expressed in the, in the Mahayana Sutra from the later northern schools of Buddhism, the Diamond Sutra, one stanza speaks of this transient nature of things. To look at the world, thus you should look upon this fleeting world. A drop of dew, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. Like this life that's just so tangible at the same time when we try and pinpoint it, it flickers, it disappears under our gaze, it morphs into the next thing. What could we make home in all of that? How could we imagine this would be home? 
And yet, we have this remarkable capacity, this conscious presence that knows this experience, the awareness that encompasses each moment and the unfoldment of all things. Can we learn to be at home in this, to rest in this which is here already? Whenever we turn to it, it's always there. Sometimes we don't remember to turn to it, but when we do, it's always there. There is nothing else we can rely on. There is no other home for a human heart, for a human being. To learn to rest in this, without making it into something or trying to fix it, it makes no guarantee of outcomes, none at all. And yet, when we touch it, when we know it, when we allow our life to live from that knowing, the fact that it's flickering and flowing and disappearing quicker than we can even try and grasp it doesn't matter. It's okay. Because there's more to this life than just all of that which flickers. And while we examine those moving moments in order to understand them, we equally look at them in order to see that there is more than just this. To make our home in that potential, that possibility, the vastness of awareness that encompasses each and every moment. I have no armor. We have nothing that can protect us from being hurt. There is not something we can create or construct that we may have tried to protect ourselves from harm. One thing we encounter in meditation practice is the attempt to armor ourselves that we've perhaps engaged in and maybe served a place or a purpose for us when we were, when we were little, perhaps as children when we didn't yet have access to our full adult capacity, hadn't learned how to truly protect ourselves. Because we can't protect ourselves by armoring. There is no armor that does that. When we rigidify, tighten and harden as we do, we find that we imprison ourselves, And we imprison ourselves with the pain. We imprison the pain within that hardening, that contraction that armoring effect that sometimes we can feel in our bodies as a rigidity, as a hardness. And that when we contact it, we realize that not only is it not protecting us from the pain, because the pain's inside, it's actually dividing us from the world. It's holding us apart. It's cutting off the tangible sense of connection that is our very life and aliveness. So to make, to look at this, to see, well, what protects? What protects is benevolence. What protects is the orientation of the heart towards caring, towards well-being. Understanding that we can allow what comes in, that touches us, that may be painful, that may be grievously poignant at times in life, and it can be, when we love and we are parted from that which we love. And it happens to us all. 
we love and we are parted from what we love. We cannot protect ourselves from this. But by allowing it in, by not armoring or defending against it, what we find is that as it comes in, so too it moves through. When we allow the heart to be open, when we don't close it down, we see that it's a permeable organ. In all its tenderness, it is not harmed because things move through. And we see that where we start to believe that I must close my heart to this person or to this part of myself, this is where we are truly harmed. Other things hurt, for sure. We get hurt by things, there's no doubt. But harm, as I'm using the words, is where that hurt becomes locked in, becomes fixed, and continues to limit or bind us. And so we, we practice meeting, we practice opening to the places of tenderness, of rawness, of, of past or present hurt, to see that ultimately no experience has the capacity to take us away from the connection we have with our life. And that, to lose that, is the deepest harm, the deepest hurt. This is the danger that we can avert, the danger of the heart closing. And we do so by being willing to turn to that place in our heart and to feel what it feels like, to trust and to come to trust in that process in the remarkable resilience of the heart. That in any moment we can be with what is here. It's only when in our mind we leave where we are in the imagination of what will be that we cannot meet it. And we cannot meet it, that's true, because it's not here. We're not asked ever to meet that. But to open to what is here and to put, as Narayan was saying, that last night or the previous time, to not put anyone out of our heart. Because to do so is to lose part of our heart. That part of our heart that's in relationship to that person is lost. It's we that are harmed. And therefore we that are protected by not doing so. A remarkable expression of this in practice, and of course not an easy thing, to undertake. But a remarkable expression of this in practice is His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. And uh, he was once being interviewed by someone who was saying to him, Your Holiness, you've suffered so much at the hands of the, the Chinese government. And yet it seems you don't express anger towards them. You even seem to express goodwill and a sense of compassion for them at times. I don't understand this. How can this be? And His Holiness responded. He said, you know, they've taken my land. They've persecuted my people. They've destroyed my monasteries. They've killed my monks and nuns. They've exiled me. They've taken from me everything they could take. 
Should I let them take my heart and mind as well? To be established in benevolence, which doesn't take away from one's capacity to say no to that which is harmful, or to act, to bring about change where it's needed. But that does so from a deep understanding that all beings need to be included in our heart. Because our heart includes all beings and is injured by the expulsion of any of them. That which is our heart includes all beings. And although our mind may not comprehend this, our heart knows. Our heart knows this. I have no sword. I make absence of self my sword. To have nothing to fight off the oncoming hordes of life. Sometimes one thinks it will be good. You know, we hear about the sword of wisdom. Just sort of cut through all the obstructions. It would be nice. And yet what is that sword? I make absence of self my sword. This is a well-constructed sentence. Sometimes when we hear the teaching of non-self, we start getting into a position that says, well, I thought I had a self and now I don't have a self. I thought that was me, but now that's not me. It's not about creating an alternative position that's polarized in opposition to the previous one. It doesn't work. To understand absence of self is not to impute onto experience, inner or outer, something it doesn't have, which is a discrete, separate, self-existent entityness. It's not to say that it's apart from that which we are. So to cut through our identification with experience as being what we are, Non-self, this teaching of absence of self, is to see that when we can directly perceive what is true in experience, we see that it is not definitive of us. It is not referring to me in a personal way. But nor is it outside of my responsibility or ultimately outside of that which encompasses what we call me, or you, and all things. So it's not a sword. If you try and grasp a sword, you get cut. You can't hold this thing. It's not made to be held as a position. It's to be used to cut through where you take a position. And when you see yourself saying, that's me, stop and ask, is that really, truly, definitively so? And if you see yourself looking at something saying, that's not me, is it really, truly, definitively so? Because when we claim something to be what we are, we instantly place everything else apart. And when we make something not what we are, we equally place that apart. And when we make a division, when we make a distinction like that and locate ourselves in either side of that division or that distinction, whether we locate ourselves 
as self or as other. Whether we locate ourself or refer to a point that we call stillness or movement. Whether we claim to be that of emptiness or that of form. Wherever we locate, and not just we, but anything, if we try and locate it, we somehow wrench it out of its wholeness and its fullness. And we lose something precious, which cannot be located, which cannot be grasped, which is not this or that, is not self nor other, is not form nor empty. This is the sword that cuts the bondage of ignorance which seeks to locate itself where there is no location, that seeks to define where there is no definition. And in the cutting of that bondage, the nature of life is revealed as unbound and boundless. May we all come to know the boundless responsive life that rests in this very moment as it is. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.